Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And normally, we do a whole list of stuff at the end of every episode telling you where you can subscribe and how you can support the show. And guess what? We're going to do it right at the beginning of the episode, which is because it's so important. We get so many great comments on Facebook and on Twitter about why are there not more subscribers to this show? Well, you can help us out, first of all, by subscribing either on Apple Podcasts or on YouTube or anywhere else you can get your podcast. And more importantly, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we we love the comments we've been getting. And for everyone who said, wow, you should have more subscribers than you have. You should have more listens than you have. Believe me, we completely agree. We love doing <laughs> Enterprise Incidents. And we are so grateful for everyone who's been with us from the beginning when we started with The Cage more than a year ago. We are grateful to everyone who's who's come aboard Enterprise Incidents over the last year and discovered us along the way, most likely through Facebook, our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents. So please make sure you check out our Facebook page and please make sure you follow our Facebook page so you can be the first to see what's coming up on Enterprise Incidents and also see some like really rare photos and stuff like that. But we really, really do appreciate your support. And Steve and I love doing this podcast, but it is a lot of work. So Steve, how can Enterprise Incidents fans support us in other ways. Well, I'll tell you, the easiest way to support the show is right on the information of this podcast. Look at the text. The very first link says subscribe, and it'll take you to Anchor, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can support the show. It makes a huge difference in us producing it. And the way we both think about it is just think about it as a tip jar. If you enjoyed the episode, give a click there, and you can help support Enterprise Incidents. And also, you can be sure to share Enterprise Incidents on your social media page. And whether it's Twitter or Facebook, if you're still using MySpace, whatever rocks your world, but just make sure that you share Enterprise Incidents so that other Star Trek fans can finally discover us. We really appreciate your support in listening. Now we need your help in, in getting a bigger audience. So thank you all for that. And without further ado, it is time for this week's episode of Enterprise Incidents. So this one's going to be a doozy. Because this is an episode that that over the years, so many people have said it is one of the worst episodes of Star Trek. And I don't feel that way. But Steve, what do you think of the Omega Glory? I definitely don't think it's one of the worst episodes of Star Trek. I think it is a deeply flawed and really odd episode of Star Trek. But I think there are things in it that are really good. And I think, and this is another one where watching it so seriously and watching the show in production order has done a disservice to Omega glory. Like if I just watched it sort of randomly, having not watched all the ones, the recent episodes, it wouldn't stick out so much, but because of the way we're watching it, it really sticks out. You know, that's a really, really great point. And this is an episode that has a very unique history among the episodes that we've covered so far in Enterprise Incidents, because the Omega Glory at one point was one of the three stories considered for the second pilot of Star Trek. Not the one wow. with Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Pike, but the one that would eventually start William Shatner as Captain James 
are Kirk. But there are a lot of reasons I've actually really liked the Omega Glory over the years. One of them is because of what you said, Steve, that it is it is an odd episode. And I kind of like that about it, but also because it is a, a great setup. I love the cinematography in this episode in particular. Jerry Finnerman was definitely at the top of his game with his 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 photography in this episode. Also, I think that the acting is really committed, especially on the part of Morgan Woodward and especially on the part of William Shatner. And when we get to a certain point in this episode, I'm going to tell you a story that goes back to when I was in fifth grade, a story that has been a great story to tell as a Star Trek fan. And it's one of the reasons why I've cut the Omega Glory some slack. But I would say overall, it has a great setup. It has a lot of action. It's really intense. And yes, the last act is flawed and problematic. But I I like the Omega Glory. And to people who think it's one of the worst episodes, are you kidding? What about the alternative factor, the way to Eden, and the children shall lead? So the fact is that the Omega Glory, I think, is unfairly criticized, although the criticisms are many. So the episode was directed by Vincent McAvity. It was the fifth episode of Star Trek that he directed. The teleplay was written by none other than Gene Roddenberry. And because it was one of the three stories considered for the second pilot, the other two being Mud's Women, and of course, Where No Man Has Gone Before, which got the job, Roddenberry's first story outline was written on April 20th, 1965. He wrote his first draft teleplay on April 28th, 1965. Wow. So, right. So then, Steve, then the decision was made, well, we're going to do where no man has gone before. That's going to be the second pilot. And considering the other two choices were the Omega Glory and Mud's Women, I'm guessing you're with me in saying they went with the right episode. 100% agree. 100%. Well, so when the Omega Glory was pushed to the first season, Roddenberry did a second draft teleplay in March of 1966. The problem is that no one at Desilu liked it, no one at NBC liked it, but Roddenberry kept pushing for it. In fact, Bob Justman wrote a really harsh nine-page memo about this episode that he was going to deliver to his boss, Roddenberry, but then he thought twice, ripped up the memo, and made some verbal suggestions instead, which, according to him, didn't do much good. So then at this point... Can I ask uh, you a question? Yes. Do you know what the studio and what Bob Justman's specific objections were? Like, why they didn't like it? Well, you know, that's the thing is, like, I don't know specifically why they didn't like it. I just know that they didn't like it. Right. But I never actually found out like what it was specifically that they in particular didn't like about it, especially because Bob Justman tore up the memo, which if that had existed, right. we would have our answer. <laughs> but at this point, freelance writers named Les and Tina Pine, who had written for other shows like The Big Valley, I Spy, and later on The Family, came in to do a pass of the Omega Glory. The pass that they did didn't really sit well with the producers or Roddenberry. They wrote their first draft and their only draft on September 19th, 1967. So that got jettisoned. So then in the second season, Gene Roddenberry did a script polish, a revised final draft teleplay 
written on December 15th, 1967. So the Omega Glory aired on March 1st, 1968. It was the 52nd episode to air, but it was actually the 55th episode to film when it was shot over seven days, which meant that it one it went one day over schedule between December 15th and December 26th, 1967. The final cost for the Omega Glory came in at $185,403, which brought it in about $3,000 over budget. And there was a partial, partial score composed by Fred Steiner. And the music that he composed was, was all that Star Spangled Banner stuff. But otherwise, the rest of the music <clears throat> was tracked. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world it's while this be, was being filmed? Let's hear it. So um, the first one, which is just really tragic, is on December 15th, Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, collapsed. Oh. Totally without warning, the middle of rush hour, the weight of rush hour traffic put too much pressure, pressure on one I-bar, which broke 31 vehicles in the center span, fell 80 feet into the Ohio River, mm, wow. killing 46 people. It just sounds absolutely Tra- terrifying. Yeah, yeah. tragic. Um, the Something we've been talk, building up to for a while, there was an agreement for a ceasefire on Christmas Day in Vietnam. This Also on December 15th, and it just always surprises me how long ago this was, is the Boeing 737 was certified by the FDA, a plane that is still like the workhorse. I mean, there are newer versions being used, yeah. but... We're still flying in the 737, and of course, there recently was the crash with the 737 MAX and all the controversy there. Something else we've been talking about, this is now on December 16th, the CIA puts together a memo where they predict the Tet Offensive, and they, they put in that we believe that the numerical strength of the North Vietnamese Army is much higher than has been reported, which is stuff we've been talking about yep. up to this point. The memo was then rewritten before it got to LBJ. So wow. Johnson didn't see the information that of the prediction of the Tet Offensive and, and of the numerical strength of the North Vietnam. And this just goes on and on about why some of these terrible decisions get made. It's just bad information. And this episode actually aired, I think, after the Tet Offensive. March Sounds 1st. right. Yeah, because yeah. March for Yeah, I think so. Um, so this, if we lived in Australia, this would be very common knowledge, but I had never heard this before, which is on December 17th, the Prime Minister of Australia, Herod Holt, went swimming in the ocean near Port Sea, Victoria, and someone watched him swim out, and then he never came back. Oh. And his body was never recovered. The assumption is he just drowned. And there, by the way, there was a book that came out in 1983 that said that he was actually a Chinese spy and that he was picked up by a, a Chinese submarine off the coast of Australia. Oh, that sounds crazy. It is crazy. It's, there's no evidence that this is true at all. Just this is a really interesting story. Um, on December 20th, Jim Garrison filed more charges um, in regards to the Kennedy, the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Mm-hmm. That first heart transplant that we discussed last week. Yep. Unfortunately, the guy passed away 18 days after uh, surgery. Um, and at first they thought it was organ rejection. And then they discovered, no, it's just pneumonia, which meant that really the, the surgery could have worked. On December 22nd, one of the most important films in the history of cinema was released. Mike Nichols' The Graduate was in cinemas on December 22nd, 1967. And you can listen to the deep dive of The Graduate on the Cinephiles with Steve Morris and John Roca. Thank you very much for the plug. I wasn't going to mention it, but yes, it's a it's a really good conversation. Thank you for, <laughs> for bringing it up. Uh, on December 23rd, 
Lyndon Johnson makes a completely unannounced visit to the troops in Vietnam. Um, this one is really scary and relates in a weird way to a Star Trek episode, which is on December 24th. The People's Republic of China tested a thermonuclear missile. They shot it up. It went off course. It was going to crash into a populated area, and they had to blow it up before it hit the ground. So that sounds a lot like the next episode we're going to cover on right? Enterprise Incidents, which is Assignment Earth. Well, um, maybe that uh, the Enterprise had something to do with that. <laughs> maybe that's what happened. Not to mention Gary Seven. I mean, yeah. they might have been involved. And then, uh, do you know what other thing happened on December 26th? There was a movie premiere you might know about. Well, Steve Morris, this one, I think I got. So it does have to do with the Beatles and the day after Christmas, which is called Boxing Day in the UK, the Beatles film, I guess you could call it, Magical Mystery Tour, had its UK premiere. And it was, it was, it, this is what I never understood, Steve. So all the psychedelic colors that went into the making of the Magical Mystery Tour movie, and when it was shown on the BBC, it was shown in black and white. Really? So, yeah. And that was one of the big reasons why for many years, Magical Mystery Tour was seen as the Beatles' first absolute failure and the newspapers had a field day the day after it aired saying like, what the heck was this? What were the Beatles thinking? Like, it was like they were waiting for them to fail and Magical Mystery Tour failed spectacularly. But over the years, it has been reassessed, especially after it was seen in color. And you know who counts himself among among one of the many fans of Magical Mystery Tour? You know what, what blockbuster director loves Magical Mystery Tour? Um, I'm going to say Peter Jackson, merely because you, I know you did a Q and a with him just recently. So I say Peter Jackson. Uh, I just, just about 20 minutes ago. Um, yeah. no, it was Steven Spielberg is a big magical mystery tour fan. <laughs> well, I'm a big Steven Spielberg fan. I haven't watched magical mystery tour in a long time, but I'm going to have to disagree with Mr. Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, that it's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. No, no. <laughs> um, um, would you like to get into the Omega glory? Yes, I would, because I have a lot to say about this, and I know you do, too. Um, Well, I'm not sure what I have to say about this. I'm going to figure this out as we go along. But one thing I will say is we've talked about how great the teasers usually are in Star Trek. And this is one where I could just feel them trying to create tension where there isn't really tension until we get to the end, which is definitely filled with tension. But so we're on the bridge of the Enterprise. We're heading towards a planet. We, we see that there's a ship orbiting the planet and that it is the USS Exeter. Exeter. She was patrolling in this area six months ago. I hadn't heard of any trouble. And there's already there's like trying to create tension by, you know, like there's a there's a music cue on going to magnification three. Magnification factor three, Mr. Sulu. As if yep. that was a really dramatic thing, which it's not. You're, you know, it's a really good point. Uh, for, you know, there, there's there's some mystery, like like they, they hadn't really heard from the Exeter uh, commanded by Captain Ron Tracy, and the planet they approached is Omega-4, so that's where the name Omega-Glory comes from. But uh, you're right, like when they uh, increase the magnification and you see the uh, the Exeter uh, orbiting the planet, which is, which again, you know, this episode was was the next episode filmed after the Ultimate Computer, where we saw four other 
Constitution class starships take on the Enterprise. And now here we are in another episode, uh, the very next one, where we are seeing yet another Constitution class starship. This one has uh, suffered the same fate, as it turns out, that uh, the USS uh, Constellation discovered, but for very different reasons, although we don't know why just yet. We head to the transporter room, and immediately Kirk says, put your phasers on heavy stun. And again, I'm going, why? What? We just saw a ship. Like, there doesn't seem to be reason for this drama. So you have Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and dot, 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 Lieutenant Galway wearing a red shirt. Steve, guess who's not coming back to the Enterprise? (laughs) McCoy? (laughs) Galway. And the thing is, so David L. Ross, who played Galway, uh, is in this episode, and he was he, you know, he's one of those background actors like Eddie Paskey is uh, Mr. Leslie, who in this episode, he dies and comes back in next season as a completely different character. And then again, as Galway, we beam over to the Exeter's engineering room, which is, again, beautifully lit. The way that Jerry Finnerman shot the Exeter reminded me of the way he shot the, const- the Constellation yeah. in the Doomsday Machine. So so the good thing is you're, you're using the Enterprise sets. It's not like you got to build a whole other engineering section or a whole other bridge. You just got to light it differently. And that's the genius of Finnerman is he, he lit it so differently, you would swear that you actually were on a completely different set. But there's there's nobody's there, and there's a lot of echo to sort of accentuate the fact that the ship is empty. And they uh, look looking around, and they see something, something on the floor. It's these uniforms with these crystals. Just the uniforms, man. As if they were in them when... Exactly. When... What? And what's weird to me about this, and this, of course, is the dramatic end of the teaser, is that on the one hand, I feel like the show is making things overly dramatic. And on the other hand, when they find these weird crystals and these clothes everywhere, I don't think they react strongly enough. Like. You know, it's like, I I know that those crystals are what's left of those humans, but it takes them f- for several more minutes into act one before they figure it out. And they're just kind of touching things and wandering around. And I'd be going like, whoa, whoa, what yeah. are you doing? We got a problem here, right? Yeah. You know, it's not like, it's not like when they beam over to the Defiant Natholian web and, you know, they see the bodies and their, their, their heads are bashed in because they were all, they all killed each other. But I do, I do still think this teaser is a really good setup. The interesting thing is that you would never know based on the setup of this teaser with these uniforms and the, the people are gone and that there's no one aboard the Exeter that you would never know what, what episode was going to come after this. Like it's like, right. like this, the setup and then it turns into something completely different. The teaser gives no indication about where this episode is going to go. But actually, I, you know, I still think it's a really good teaser. It's effective. It's haunting because of the lighting, because of the echo that you hear when they're talking to each other because there's no one aboard the ship. So the interesting thing about this, Steve, is that the teaser and act one for this episode borrowed from a story treatment called Web of Death. Web of Death was written, dated back in April April 29th, 1966. That treatment for Web of Death, you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Was written by, are you ready for this? I'm ready. I'm ready. William Shatner. Really? William Shatner wrote a story treatment for a Star Trek episode. It was called Web of Death. And the starship 
was called the USS Momentus, which disappeared around Orvis 3, and the Enterprise crew beams aboard the USS Momentus to find only uniforms. So, of course, Web of Death never got made. Uh, there was a chance that it might be like one of the last episodes to be filmed for the third season, but that didn't happen. But it is very interesting that Shatner's story treatment served as the uh, inspiration for what Roddenberry wound up using as the teaser for the Omega Gore. Wow, that's I had no idea that Shatner was writing stuff that early. I, yeah, me neither. Fascinating to me. Yep. This is Captain Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Is there anyone on board? We're looking around. All we're finding are these uniforms with no bodies on the bridge. More clothes. Kirk asks Spock to play the last log tape. And as he's doing this, McCoy starts listing the chemicals that he's finding in these crystals. And it's very obvious that Spock is listening and understands what this all means. Right. These white crystals, that's what's left of the human body when you take the water away, which makes up 96% of our bodies. Without water, we're all just three or four pounds of chemicals. Now, that's as dramatic as that is. That's not actually true. No, it's not The true. Uh, 96% is a bit, uh, you know, I would say that McCoy uh, overplayed his hand just a bit. The actual figure of water making up the human body is closer to 60%. But what's also interesting about this episode is that in the 1965 version of the script that Roddenberry wrote, the Exeter was not the Exeter. It was called the USS Argentina. And the Enterprise helmsman was a Lieutenant Richard Raintree. So uh, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, those Star Trek books that James Blish wrote, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with all the short versions of the episodes. So in his uh, adaptation for the Omega Gory for Star Trek 10, uh, which was not a movie, just the name of a book, uh, James Blish used Raintree in the episode instead of Galway, who we see on the screen. Interesting. Interesting. Um, we bring up the log and there's the medical officer sitting in the captain's chair looking real bad. And he says, if you've come aboard the ship, you're dead, man. Don't go back to your own ship. You have one chance. Get down there. Get down there fast. Captain Tracy is. <laughs> and then he screams and dies. And yes. one thing I do like is after they play that, we look down on the ground and see his empty uniform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, it makes it uh, like, like you know, it hits you that that was a person. <laughs> um, and this is a scary moment. And we go, we better be down to the planet, uh, which they do. And now, and this is, as you, you as you point out, this is the last we sort of deal with the Exeter and... Now it becomes a very, very different show. From yeah, this point it's forward. so different from this point forward. Like, like you never hear really about about the uh, the impact of like in a, you know four hundred and twenty eight people on the Exeter dying. Uh, but you know now we've got a whole different matter to contend with because the captain is alive and well on the planet's surface. And they beam down, and right in front of them, they see what looks like about to be an execution. There's this big blonde guy there's a woman there and there the the one of the uh, people with the axe makes a motion towards kirk and spock and mccoy and galway and you know kirk it takes a defensive posture like he's about mm. to defend himself from this guy attacking him with the with the big axe with the axe away Lee yang and it's captain ron tracy played by 
Morgan Woodward, who of course is really familiar to Star Trek fans who were watching Dagger of the Mind back in season one, where Morgan Woodward gave a fantastic, really committed, and very disturbing performance as Dr. Simon Van Gelder. Of course, to you, Steve, Morgan Woodward is probably really familiar from the movie Cool Hand Luke. He was also in Battle Beyond the Stars. And on TV, he was in shows like The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, Wagon Train, The Virginian, and Gunsmoke. And this is one of the places where I don't understand why people rank this episode so low, because I think Morgan Woodward's really good. I do too. Yep, he really is. And his character is very different from Van Gelder, and he's very menacing and intense, and I like him a lot in this episode. And he's also, as we find out, he's really strong. (laughs) Yeah. I knew someone would come looking for us. I'm just sorry it had to be you, Jim. I'm glad your arrival stopped this. Because it stopped this execution, which this doesn't, I don't understand if they were going to execute them, why does Kirk arriving stop it? Well, well, maybe, maybe that's why, uh, like Kirk and, you know, the landing party being there, if they were about to execute this guy, Ron Tracy would have a lot to answer for really, really fast by him stopping the execution it buys Tracy some time mm. to explain the situation to Kirk. The prisoners are called Yangs. Impossible even to communicate with. Hordes of them out there. They'll attack anything that moves. There's a lot of exposition here to Kirk and Spock and McCoy, who are already understandably, justifiably, really suspicious. Well, and they're suspicious for several reasons. The first one is that Captain Tracy is obviously involved involved in the society. The second one is the natives mention fireboxes. Interesting that the villagers know about phasers. You were left alone down here, Ron. What happened? Our metascanners reveal this planet is perfectly harmless. The villagers, the cones here, were friendly enough once they got over the shock of my white skin. As you've seen, we resemble the Yangs, the savages. And I just, I, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this thought, which yeah. is that, and, and again, this is 1960s, where in the 60s, the idea of what the was civilization and what was savage was pretty rigid in our thinking. And why and was it, that? Well, I mean, we had a very Eurocentric view of what the world was, exactly. you know, mm-hmm. and, and today it's 2022, we have a slightly different view. And, you know, I look at, Native American cultures and say they have complex civilizations, just like our complex civilizations. The idea of savages, you know, that says something very pejorative that to me in the, you know, Star Trek world that has the prime directive, we should not be labeling groups like that. You know what I mean? Which is what Tracy is doing right from the beginning. First of all, that's an excellent point. Second of all, the fact that Tracy is already doing that just goes to show you how, how much, uh, 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 he was not in touch with with what what Star Trek was really all about, which makes him going rogue like this, while not not admirable, understandable that he he sees an opportunity for himself that he was willing to sacrifice his crew for, as we as we later find out. But the question I have for you, Steve, is yes. you know when I was watching this episode over the years, especially when I was young, I mean I thought it was fun. There was a lot of action. And, you know, all the stuff at the end with Kirk reciting the preamble to the Constitution, all that to me as a kid was really, really inspiring. 
But watching it as a grown-up, watching it in 2022, and seeing the extremes in which these people are labeled, that the uh, Yangs are, are savages, and that the, the natives, who, who we later find out are the Combs, are, are Asian. And the way that it's I, – I get it. It's a flip uh, of a parallel Earth culture as we, as we find out. But do you think that there and – and I'm only saying this because it's stuff that I've read over the years, especially online, where the Omega Glory was – people feel that it's, it's a racist episode. That it has not aged well, and though it wasn't intended to be racist, the fact that it hasn't aged well makes it feel a little racist. I think it, it that's not how I feel about it. Yeah. Be- and the reason I don't feel that way, I think there's an element of that, but I think the episode is so confused in what it's trying to say yeah. that it doesn't, it doesn't manage to be fully racist. Uh, because what's weird is, the combs seem perfectly nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. we have no reason to dislike them. And then, you know, spoiler alert of where we're going to go at the end of the episode, we're kind of going to side with the Yangs. Right. And the reason we're going to side with the Yangs seems like they're because those are the white people. Like that, that's the element that I think does deal with a, because it isn't, and this I and, and this is jumping way ahead. Yeah. But what I think the episode is wants to deal with is about. America and what's great about America, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really deal with that. Right. It really doesn't. We don't actually engage in any of the ideas. We don't know. I mean, well, again, what we're going to find out is these are the communists. That's why they're called combs, but we don't know that this society that we're in is communist. Right. We that's don't know true. anything about, they just seem nice. Yeah. Seem well, nice and peaceful. That's yeah, all we know. You, you, you know, they're, they're the combs are, are, you know, Spock makes the connection to communists, but, but we don't know enough about them to say, Oh yeah, they're definitely commies. But uh, at the same time, I, I, I think that to, to label it, you know, and I'm just going by what I've read and, and I certainly see that it, it hasn't aged well. And I do agree with that, but I, I don't think, I think for, to, to label it as now being racist is, is, is a bit too much, but I understand it, but I don't see it that way. I, I feel the same way you do. I, I can totally see how one makes that conclusion yeah. because the, the thing about the Combs, they don't really speak. And they just get kind of treated as kind of as objects and then they are rejected. Right. They don't have a lot of agency. So I do, I do, I totally see the point, but to me, it just all falls into this is episodes confused about what it wants to be. My landing party transported back to the ship. I stayed down here to arrange for the planet survey with the village elders. The next thing I knew, the ship was calling me. The landing party had taken an unknown disease back. My crew, Jim. My entire crew gone. Yes, I know we saw it. So here's my other question. If that had not happened, if Tracy's crew didn't take the disease back with them to the Exeter, killing the entire crew, do you think that that Tracy still would have gone in the direction that he goes in this episode? Do you think that he felt like, well, I have no way of getting back to the Exeter. I'm stuck here. So... I might as well see see whatever opportunities here that I can do for myself. And 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 basically that's when he really sort of violates the prime directive. <laughs> so uh, you made a reference before to the constellation and Commodore Decker and the Doomsday Machine. Yep. 
I think there's a, definitely a connection here, and I don't think there's anything we. This could have been an episode where, like Commodore Decker, Captain Tracy is messed up mm-hmm. because of the death of his crew, and in his desire to solve that and save lives, he believes he's found the fountain of youth, and that he wants to do that. Yeah, we could have done that, but that's not in this episode. <laughs> yeah, there, he he doesn't mention his crew or guilt about them at all. At all, right? So yeah, he's he's completely composed and yeah, totally sane and rational. Yeah, so so it doesn't it doesn't seem like the episode is engaging in that idea. I think that would have made the episode more interesting. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> You'll stay alive only as long as you stay here. None of us will ever leave this planet. That's a lot to it's a lot to take in. You you just get down, you beam down to the planet, you 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 stop an execution, you see the captain of the other starship, and he tells you no one none of us will ever leave this place. That's a lot of information to take to take in a process. <laughs> what's this is what's hard at this point of where near the end of season two is that A, there's an element of this episode that's the doomsday machine. There's an element of this episode that is the parallel world thing. And we're certainly going to see them get captured and put in jail and escape and do this, which we see a lot in these other episodes. Yeah. The other episode this is, is Miri. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say, you know, when you said that there's a lot of other episodes here, Miri definitely is one of them. Right down to McCoy doing research to try to find what the cure is so they can go back to the Enterprise. Although it appears the infection may strand us here the rest of our lives... I face an even more difficult problem. A growing belief that Captain Tracy has been interfering with the evolution of life on this planet. It seems impossible. A star captain's most solemn oath is that he will give his life, even his entire crew, rather than violate the prime directive. Uh Oh, I know. I think I know what's coming. And I wrote, really? (laughs) 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 To me, this is like, you know, in Casablanca where Claude Rains says, I'm shocked. Shocked to find out there's gambling going on yeah, here. It's the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, it's like, dude, it was two episodes ago that you fixed the Nazi planet. Before then, you fixed the, I mean, the like, the go planet. By, yeah, the gangster planet. There's Landru. There's the Apple. There's, like, you're fixing. <laughs> you're this just goes on. On and on of you messing around with other planets. And yep. so your indignation is a little bit uh, unbelievable. <laughs> the infection resembles one developed by Earth during their bacteriological warfare experiments in the 1990s. Of the 1990s. <laughs> of the 1990s. What, what, one thing, by the way, is, is that if you want the clues of screenwriting, nobody ever mentions a thing like that in a screenplay unless it ends up being true. Oh, okay, right. There'd be no reason to waste your time talking about the bac- bacteriological warfare experiments of the 90s unless that has something to do with what actually happened, you know, because right. that is a that's the plant. And then in comes Spock with our red guy looking a little beat up. Yeah, they just and, got attacked. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, this this whole scene that we're in right now was actually the first scene that was filmed on day one of the production of, of the Omega Gord. Spock, do you see any hope that these Yangs can be reasoned with? A, a truce, a parley? A... No, Captain. They're too wild. They act almost insane. And again, I'm like, look, we've negotiated with uh, the Horda, you know? <laughs> yeah. But like, it seems that we've kind of writing off this group of people a little too prematurely. Captain Tracy is being quite factual in several statements. One, the Yangs are totally contemptuous of death. They seem incredibly vicious. Two, he is also being factual in that the Yangs are massing for an attack. Okay, so we got a big war coming. Yep. However, it was less than truthful 
in one very important matter. These are power packs. Captain Tracy's reserve belt packs, empty. Found among the remains of several hundred Yang bodies. He is definitely interfering. And this is the thing we're not dealing with. Yeah. He, he killed a lot of people. Yeah. Like hundreds of, of people. And with his phaser. And with by the way, phaser. with one person with a phaser on a planet like this, and he's he has complete control, but that phaser is going to run out of, and in fact, it is he is running out of power. Yeah. As and and it's you know he sees like like Kirk showing up as his salvation, like he's going to get all the phasers and all the power packs he wants. The other thing we're not really talking about is it seems very much that Captain Tracy is in charge of the calm. Exactly. Like yeah. He's he's taken over. Now, is he taken over because of his phaser? Absolutely. There's no way that the the Combs would have followed him so blindly if he was just some guy in, you know, a, a, a different type of wardrobe. He so, he wields this power that to the Combs is it's kind of like a private little war, you know, where where that little phaser one was so far above the flintlocks that uh you know, Nona was ready to go to the other side with it. That's so, what's going on here. So, and and it, it, and this is the thing about this episode: is there are all these interesting things that happening that that we're not engaging in? We never talk about the fact that he's taken over the calm village. We never talk about that. Well, you well, know? but when they get there, I think it immediately establishes like the way the way that Captain Tracy is introduced. You hear his voice before you see him, and then. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy look over in his direction, and he's standing there, and the camera is like right around his like waist, looking up at him. It is establishing some kind of authority, definitely something ominous about him that something is not quite right. But I think from the beginning, it's established. He's it's already established the way the Combs are following his orders that he's the one in charge. I agree with everything you've said. What what my point is, is the episode isn't engaging in you came down and with your phaser took over this village and you are now the dictator. Like we're not, you know what I mean? We're not talking about that as Mm -hmm. a, as a thing. We're saying that he interfered, which is what we discuss right now. Without a serum, we're trapped here with the villagers. Now why destroy what's left of the man by arresting him? I agree that formal charges have little meaning now. However, you must at least confiscate his phaser. Starfleet should be made aware. And as soon as he opens the communicator, as soon as the communicator makes that activation sound, in walks Tracy with his phaser drawn, and Wu is right behind him. And again, the camera is around his around his waist, looking up at him, and he's got this really dark shadow on him. This whole scene, by the way, this whole scene in this room, the lighting is fantastic. Like, it's just, this episode has a gritty feel to it. Mm-hmm. I'll be sending the next message soon. And there's there's Galloway, injured. He goes to slowly reach for his phaser. And Tracy, without any remorse, any hesitation whatsoever, fires his phaser, disintegrating Galloway, and then turning the phaser back on Kirk. And that is a hell of an end to act one. Again, I think Tracy, I think his, the performance is great. I think he is super menacing. And I also think unlike 
doomsday machine, it just seems like Captain Tracy's a bad guy. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem like Captain Tracy is dealing with his grief or that he passionately believes in this fountain of youth thing and saving lives. He has no motivations other than he seems to be a bad guy. Yeah. You know, even though it sounds like he and Kirk were friends or at least friendly before that Kirk had a lot of respect for him. So that's weird. It doesn't quite all fit. You know, you know, it's interesting. Like after watching court martial and after the discussion we had last week with the, the, the ultimate computer, when Dave, uh, Dave Rossi, our guest last week asked, why are they choosing Kirk? for this mission to test out the M5 computer. Kirk is still, as we've seen, and now here we, we, we're seeing another Starship captain who is clearly much older than Jim Kirk. So mm-hmm. were they friendly? What was the camaraderie among the uh, among all the captains? It, make, it does make you wonder, did they, did they all have this camaraderie? Or was there, was there some animosity to Kirk because he got command of the Enterprise at such, such a young age. I wonder what what Tracy really thinks of Kirk. It's a great question. We come, we come back in Act 2. We're in the same spot. Uh, in come more of the combs who confiscate some of the equipment. And, you know, the more I'm kind of going over thinking about this issue of, of race, the, the thing, I, they really are treated just as objects. There are no personalities. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. don't have characters. Um, they're just there. Um, and Tracy grabs a communicator, calls up to the Enterprise, Uhura answers. I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. Your captain and landing party must have beamed down too late for full immunization. They've been found unconscious, but I'm doing everything I can for them now. And Sulu leans in and says that he's in command and he's, you know, the medical staff is ready to beam down. And as he's talking, you see Kirk looking at that communicator. Yeah, he's fidgety. He's like, just wants to grab it from him, which he does. And then uh, he gets hit over the head by uh, by Wu, I guess, with, the, with yeah. the back of his axe. Well, but he does yell Sulu. Sulu! And this is the thing. How many episodes have we had where Kirk was being held and the Enterprise was trying to figure out what to do? It's bread and circuses. It's piece of the action. It's a whole bunch of episodes where we've seen this. And for some reason, Sulu does nothing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. He heard his captain yell, Sulu! Yeah. And then said nothing more. And he's just, is he just buying? I guess everything's okay. I guess you Scotty know? was busy in engineering because he would have done something about it. Would have done something. <laughs> well, and we're not trying to solve the problem. There's just a lot of things that could be done that we're kind of not doing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And now it's night. A guard moves by and Kurt catches his leg and is about to do an escape move, but nope, there's Captain Tracy. Tracy walks in with his phaser drawn. Like, mm-hmm. without that phaser, man, Tracy is just like, he's got nothing. Kirk sits up, and much like in Obsession, when Spock and McCoy confront him about the choices he's made and read from regulations, Kirk now reads from regulations to Captain Tracy, who says, Those were the first words duty required you to say to me, and you said them. You're covered. Now, suppose we go on to the next subject, which is why I think Morgan Woodward in the scene, in this whole episode, actually, is great. But I like when uh, when Kirk says what well, he says, which is why. And he goes, good, direct, succinct. Yeah. And the answer is that there's no disease on this planet. And he asked one of the guys, one of the combs, his age, who said, and this guy says, 
I've seen 42 years of the red bird. Tracy explains that the year of the bird happens every 11 years, which means he's 462 years old and his dad is over a thousand. Basically, there's virtual immortality, immortality going on this planet. And Tracy wants to bottle it and sell it. Which A, goes into this, you know, what are the economics of Starfleet thing? Uh, or uh, what are the economics of the Federation thing? But because obviously still at this point, we can still make some money on some stuff. Mm-hmm. I think there are three different episodes here. And I wish they had picked one. There's the whatever it was, Web of Death or whatever, the Shatner idea, which is similar to Miri, but like of this, you know, disease. Yeah. There's the rogue guy on the planet who's interfering because he thinks he's found the fountain of youth. And then there's this parallel Earth thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I and I think if we had picked a lane and just explored this guy who like and you could make him a I could save millions of lives if I can isolate this thing. Then he has a positive motivation rather than just being a bad guy. And it would be a more interesting episode, I think. You, you know, uh, here's what I'll say about you have you have three different stories going on here, and you're like, why couldn't they just pick one? Or they could have had someone come in and do a rewrite to make it all come together, where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's what happened when Dorothy Fontana came in and did a complete rewrite of Lawrence Wolf's script for the ultimate computer because originally mm. the ultimate computer was about was 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 more focused on Daystrom and the M5 and it was Fontana who made it more about about Kirk and the relationship between Kirk Spock and McCoy while still telling a really great story about Daystrom and the M5. So what this episode needed was an absolute ace like Eugene Kuhn or a Fontana to come in and do a rewrite, to bring it all together, to make it all work. So so one story is complementing the other instead of, oh, we're telling this story, now we're telling that story, now we're telling that one. Couldn't agree more. And I, and I go back to something I said a long time ago, which is I think that the best Star Trek episodes have an interesting science fiction idea, a real sense of adventure and thrills, and they're personal. This episode's not personal. No, it's not. Is that what if Captain Tracy was Kirk's mentor? Right. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What if this was someone he really looked up to? You know, what if and then what if you give Tracy a more positive motivation to sell save lives rather than I want to make money and don't have him such a bad guy? And then he could maybe persuade Kirk a little bit. There you go. You know? There you go. You know? That that's the thing. That like what if like like in uh Patterns of Force, we find out that John Gill was uh Kirk's instructor at the academy. Right. What it may, what if there was a a mentor relationship like that between Tracy and Kirk? That would have that would have raised the stakes on a more personal level and made the episode better. But they're talking as as uh, <laughs> as our bad guy is monologuing. Uh, Kirk, of course, is getting a little time to work on his bonds, and we see those inserts of him working on the his wrists that are strapped that are tied together. And he does what he does, which is Kirk, the trickster, starts to agree with Tracy. Yeah, this would be a really good thing to get this, you know, serum and save lives. But we've got to stay alive. Let the Yangs kill us and destroy what we have to offer. And we'll have committed a crime against all humanity. So Tracy is justifying killing a whole bunch of Yangs in order to save lives, theoretically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd say that's slightly more important than the prime directive. Wouldn't you, Jim? It's a very interesting proposition. Let me think it all. I like what you what you said. How how Kirk is like agreeing with him. He's he's disarming 
yeah. Tracy. He's he's uh like earning his trust so that he'll put down his phaser, which the moment he does actually put down his phaser or at least lower it a little bit, he Kirk has freed his his hands from the noose and he he goes right after Tracy to get the phaser out of his hands and they get into this fight. And Kirk, who we have seen, is a really good fighter, but not against Tracy, who is a better fighter than he is. And what I love about this scene is that Morgan Woodward's performance, he like is like he knows that he is stronger than Kirk, right? Like he's almost like having fun with the fact that he's one step ahead of Kirk in the fight and and you know, like he's got this like smile on his face. I totally agree. Well, this is the things that I like about the episode. I think the choice to have Kirk lose this fight mm-hmm. and to have Tracy being a better fighter and enjoy it is awesome. Again, think if Tracy was Kirk's mentor. Yeah. I could never beat him. I could never beat him. Like you have that idea that then it all becomes personal in a way that this isn't actually that personal. But needless to say, Kirk loses. I think, is this the first sort of straight up loss in combat i mean maybe against spock in a mock time oh uh, i think yeah i would say that was a big one <laughs> yeah and we head into jail and there is that same big guy the big yang yeah that was about to be executed in the town square there he is in jail there he is in jail and we will come to learn that his name is cloud william played by roy jensen on film he was in chinatown and steve you'll appreciate this he was the guy who cut Jack Nicholson's nose in Chinatown. I thought I thought Roman Polanski cuts his nose. He was with Roman Polanski. Oh, he was like, okay. you know, he was like, there are people with one him. of the thugs. Yeah. One of the thugs. Uh, he was in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, every which way but loose, any which way you can, hockey tuck man. So he's clearly worked with Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood uh, yeah. a lot. He was also on TV in Peter Gunn, Batman, The Fugitive, I Spy, and Bonanza. And with cloud william is sarah played by irene kelly uh who they had to position her her wardrobe so her belly button was covered because you couldn't show a female belly button on tv in the 60s i the whole belly button thing it just cracks me up yeah and Wu, tell your men we'll be leaving soon we'll be an ambush for the yangs there's a look on cloud william's face mm, good point and the camera zooms in a little bit and that's the first indication that maybe the Yangs aren't as savage as Tracy has made them out to be because there's a sign of compassion and worry on mm-hmm. cloud, on, on this guy's face when he hears that the, the Yangs are going to be ambushed. And then the Cloud William is lunging at Kirk through the bars. Animals who happen to look like us still thank the prime directives for this planet. This is where I just don't think this makes sense. Tracy saying, do you think the prime directive applies to this planet? Because he sees the Yangs as acting like quote unquote animals. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, the whole point is that you can't judge the other society. You don't know anything about the Yangs. You don't, you know what they're like in battle. You don't know what they're like with their families or what their culture. You don't know anything about them. I don't think we have the right or the wisdom to interfere. However, a planet is evolving. Again, that goes back to what you said. <laughs> He's done that many times already, but All, it's okay. Yeah. Um, Kirk, well, Kirk believes that he has the was. It's so interesting because this is one of the big Kirk to Picard changes of the Kirk believes he knows what's best in the end. Mm-hmm. And Picard mm-hmm. believes that he's 
can't decide for other people as much. That's right. You know? That's a big, big difference between the two. And it's a difference between the 60s and the 80s and 90s, you yep. know, or today. <laughs> uh, and then they put Kirk into the cage with Cloud William, and they immediately are into a fight. And they're into a fight with the music that, of course, will be really familiar because almost any time after a mock time that there was a fight, whether it was Bread and Circuses or uh, Games of the Triskelion, they would use that music from a mock time during the fight. In fact, they used it so much that when you get into the third season, you never heard it again. Mm. It's really, I think it's too big for most of the fight here. Like, cause that music is so powerful and dramatic. And I think one of the things that happens in film, if you have music that's too big or too dramatic, it actually does has the opposite effect is that it makes the scene less dramatic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. Um, because the music is going beyond it. Um, by the way, I know that the longest, or I believe the longest fight in Star Trek in the original series is that long one on shore leave. Yep, that's right. Almost five minutes. But this episode might have the most fighting of any episode. I, I agree. There is a lot of fighting in this episode. You've got yep. the, you know, hey, you had the fight in the room with, with Tracy and Kirk. You've got this fight now, and you got another fight with Tracy and Kirk, and then you got another fight with Tracy and Kirk. Yeah. You're right. There is a lot it's of a fighting. Lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Uh, and, and, and he's, Kirk is getting choked and we cut away from that to the lab where McCoy makes a move to grab like a weapon thing and the guard watching him, you know, is it going to let him get away with it? And he picks up a glass as if that's what he was reaching for in the first place. That's a really good scene, by the way. It's good. Yeah. It's yeah. It's totally a, well done. Really done. And again, the lighting and the, the, the direction of it, you know, Kirk, uh, uh, McCoy rather, he goes to, he goes for his medical pouch. The, the sword comes down. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and by the way, that guy's a good actor. Like as they're there, because actors who can without a line and with just a look hold space and have some power in a scene, which he totally does. He totally does. That's a good actor. Yep. Don't they have a rest? Not that I have observed, Captain. Of course, should they wish to do so, one could always rest while the other keeps you occupied. Thank you, Spock. So I don't know how long Kirk has been fighting. <laughs> but it seems like it's been a long time. And Shatner um, really has really his Shatner's commitment in this episode is great. He really it's a very physically demanding role. I don't think there's stuntmen. I don't think he's doubled in this. Yeah, episode. I don't. If there's a stuntman, I, I can't uh, find it. I, this doesn't play well for me at all. Please tell me why you want to kill me. Good, Captain. Try to reason with him. Actually, this is a really good scene because as Kirk is fighting Cloud William. I don't think it's a really good scene. I, but I think there are good things in the scene. I'll put it that way. I, I actually, I think it's a good fight scene because I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, you know, the, the dialogue with Spock trying to, you know, diffuse the situation and, you know, pro- provide some levity with Kirk's responses. But, but the way that, you know, it's two on one and, you know, mm-hmm. as, as, as Kirk and Cloud William are sort of circling each other, Sarah is sort of like backing, you know, moving up against the law and then, then to the the gate of the cell. And when Kirk finally gets the upper hand, flipping Cloud Williams over, and she's shocked. And then Spock just re- the way he just kind of like reaches yep. over and gives her gives her the famous neck pinch. And then she falls to the ground, passes out. So Cloud William is looking at Kirk like, wow, he really got me. And then he's looking at what this other guy did to the girl. Uh, and he, like the camera zooms in on him, like he's, he's, 
put in his place finally. Well, and he shows compassion for the girl. Yeah. You know, which again, this idea of they are quote unquote savages. It's like, well, that, that, that's clearly not true. And this is a key moment that I do love. That's important for Star Trek where Kirk says, Pity you can't teach me that. I have tried captain. We go back to McCoy and there's just a little bit where a woman brings him uh, some food and at first he doesn't notice her and then looks up and notices that she's beautiful and and smiles. And by the way, her belly button is clearly visible. Yeah, it is. And for, for that one moment, it is. But then in the next scene, her hand is covering her navel at mm. this point. Yeah. Back with Kirk and Spock, Spock says that he's loosened one of the bars and that maybe the, their bars are as old. I can't even get at it. It'd be on me in a moment. Keep talking, Spock. Don't let me doze off. And again, we come up with that there used to be a bigger civilization and there must have been a huge war, either nuclear devastation or a bacteriological holocaust. And Kirk says, The yellow civilization is almost destroyed. The white civilization is destroyed. I hate at this point this term yellow as a term for Asians. Yeah, just, I, I, I cringe yeah. when I when I heard that this for the you know, when I look you know, and we talked about this many times. We are watching these episodes so closely. We're yeah. watching them where where times have really, really changed and, and we're much more sensitive to things than we right. ever have been. And that use of the word yellow just really did make me cringe. Yeah. But then he says, but it's accepted. But this is the thing is that in the sixties, that was a perfectly common way to express things. And this is, you know, we've wrestled with this a ton in the cinephiles of like, how do we judge a movie and talk about it in terms of today's perspective and in terms of the perspective of when it was made and the perspective of when this was made, this wasn't a really a big deal. But absolutely. So that I'm with you. I cringe now. Yeah, I cringe now. But, you know, at the time, 67, when they made it, it was a different story. Keep working on the window if we're ever going to regain our freedom. Freedom. Steve Wayne Cloud William says, freedom. I think this is a great moment because the way that, you know, Kirk is just trying to hold himself up. He's physically and emotionally exhausted. And Spock is, you know, still working on the, the bars. The way that Kirk, like, just lifts up his head, like, in complete shock and amazement. Like, first of all, this guy can talk. Second, he's, he repeats what he said. And he repeats it again. He goes, Freedom. I think it's actually chilling the way this part of this scene is directed because, well, first of all, uh, Roy Jensen's voice was altered for this episode. Hmm. So it was slowed down a little bit to give it a deeper feeling. And I think it's, it's actually really good the way they slowed it down. It makes the dialogue more powerful. But when he says freedom and Kirk looks up, it looks up at him, I think it's a great moment. That is a worship word. Yang worship. You will not speak it. And Kirk, again, always adapting quickly to circumstances, says, It is our worship word, too. Live with the Combs. Am I not now a prisoner of the Combs, as you are? And here's where I go, like, you know, Cloud William's not dumb. Right. Like, he's been listening to them talk the whole time. Uh He knows that they're prisoners. It does seem like, why were you trying to beat up Kirk this whole time? And I also go... And this we'll get into later. Does Cloud William know what the word freedom means? Uh, well, I mean, he, he, he knows. Well, 
Okay, we'll get into that later. Because there's stuff later on where I go like, well, what do they know of what these words are? Yeah, what what do they think it means versus what it does mean? Right. Well, and of course, whatever they think it means, that is what it means for their culture. Right. You know, words change meaning over time. We have a lot of words that mean totally different things today than when those words started. And some of those words are good. Some of those words are bad. So Kirk heads over to the bar uh, of in the window and starts to move it. And man, these bars are not... <laughs> they're not strong they're in bad shape yeah and cloud william goes to help and we're like oh they're working together why did you not speak until now you spoke to gums only for killing one of the other things that's weird because is that i think the episode wants us to side with cloud william and mm-hmm. by the end sure it does to be on team yang i think it does too i mean i think that's pretty yeah. obvious yeah but i don't think the gangs are good people Combs are only for killing. Well, like, right, right. you know, like the, the description of them as savages and how they fight, they're not nice, you know? Well, well uh, at the same time, Steve, the Combs see the Yangs as savages. And, right, absolutely. And, you know, they, they each one sees the other as savages. So, well, I don't know that they see the Combs as savages, but they definitely see them as subhuman or, you know, inferior. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, inferior. Um, and we get one bar out and Kirk turns around and yells to Spock, Spock, we'll have you out in a minute. And then boom, hit over the head by Cloud Williams with that bar. Again, Kirk really goes through the ringer in this episode. And then Cloud Williams just rips the other bar out. I mean, it's just like nothing, which as a kid, I thought was really cool. And looking at it now, I'm like, come on. (laughs) It's act three. Kirk wakes up, rubbing his head, asks Spock, how long? Seven hours and eight minutes, Captain. That's a long time. <laughs> so the the window was wide open. <laughs> the Cloud William and the woman are gone, and for seven hours and eight minutes, nobody noticed. Nobody, no, yeah, nobody <laughs> came in to check on them. No one checked on them. No one saw the outside of the building where the bars were now gone. That's a good point. I mean, I mean somebody, maybe they were I, distracted by the Yang attack. I guess is what we could say. But at some point, don't you think Tracy would have come back to see how yeah. Kirk was faring against this guy? And now, you know, we basically figure out how we're going to get out. Spock neck pinches another guy. We go to McCoy. And now McCoy gives us the exposition on what happened. It was a biological war. The virus does still exist. But over the years, nature has built up all these immunizing units and the food and the water and the soil. The war created an imbalance and nature counterbalanced. By the way, this always reminds me is people talk about with climate change and with all the things that are happening, pollution in our planet, and like, like we're destroying the planet. And it's like, no, the planet will be fine. <laughs> it will adapt to all of this. Whether or not we get to continue living on the planet, that's the issue that's going on and that's what it will be like. Well said. Yep. There is a disease here, something that affected the Exeter landing party and us. That's right. These immunizing agents take time, and that's the real tragedy. Had the Exeter landing party stayed here just a few hours longer, they never would have died. So they can leave anytime they want. They're fully immunized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we talk about this idea of, well, but Tracy says that this is what makes them live longer. And McCoy's like, no, they live longer because it's survival of the fittest. It's natural for them. Yeah. Which I also go to, why didn't Tracy have this thought. He knows that Vulcans live two to three times as long as humans. It, it is this whole thing, this whole the whole foundation of Tracy's 
I guess you could say mutiny in some ways is, uh, or the, uh, just the complete disregard for the prime directive, the way he, he sees this as an opportunity. Like he sees that, that there's immortal virtual immortality going on here, but did it ever occur to him? And this guy got to be, a, they, they just live longer. Cause that's just the way it is down here. And I, again, the actor is great. Yep. You know, yeah, it's just the material great. that he has is really, really flawed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I do like this McCoy. It's a good McCoy moment. Now, if you want to destroy a civilization or a whole world, perhaps your descendants might develop a longer life, but I hardly think it's worth it. So Spock has figured out how they're going to signal the ship and they're about to do it. And then a phaser hits the machine he's working on. Spock gets knocked back and there again. Tracy entered just like this before. Now he's entered again and shoots something looking even more crazed than he did the last time. Well, now he's looking crazed like he did a Simon Van Gelder and yeah. a dagger of the mind. But yes, so, so there was an attack by the gangs and the way that, again, the, the, this episode was filmed in 1967 in uh, December of 1967. And the way that Tracy is describing... They sacrificed hundreds just to throw us out in the open. And then they came, and they came. They drained four of our phasers, and they still came. They killed thousands, and they still came. What does that sound like? It, well, it's funny. I, I think you're saying that it sounds like Vietnam. That's exactly which, what I'm saying. Yeah, that's not that's not what I think of, but I totally understand why you say that. What do you think of? Gallipoli. Oh, okay. You know, there you go. like just because of the way the, you know, that the way warfare has changed, this sounds like a frontal assault with a lot of mass against way superior weapons that it's kind of hopeless. And also this episode aired in March of 1968, which was after the Tet. Right. Where they came and they came and sacrificed thousands and they still came. I mean, the, the episode became pretty timely in just a couple months after the episode was filmed. And then Kirk tries to explain. We can beam up at any time. Any of us. You've isolated the serum. There's no serum! There's no miracles! There's no immortality here! All this is for nothing! Do you think Tracy buys any of this? Nope. He's gone. Tracy's Tracy's like off the deep. He's 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 gone off the rails. And he makes Kirk go outside and it's empty. And I think actually they make a positive out of their lack of extras oh right yeah where is everybody mm-hmm. yeah because everyone's gone and we hear the drums and it's very menacing and scary uh, by the way those drums the sound of the drums really makes this a i think a really effective scene yeah like this no, I, some, I agree there are some good moments in the omega glory it's not like bad like people say i think it is it's it's, it, it's exactly that it's that it's good moments that don't hold together right yeah yeah you know tracy is an interesting bad guy and you have interesting moments but at the end you're like well what was this about right. you know yeah i want five phasers no 10 with three extra power packs each it's a lot of high power yeah yeah kirk calls the enterprise i'd like 10 phasers beamed down with three extra power packs please and there's a look. Yeah. And Sulu says, we read you. But surely, you know, that can't be done without verification. Not even if we're in danger, Mr. Sulu. <laughs> well, and again, this seems like a Kirk signaling Sulu to get help. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. But that, it, but it isn't. 
Yeah, it's and, not. It's yeah. It, it should be like a condition green, all's well, Kirk out. Yeah, right. Um, but it, that's not what it is. And again, this goes. But we really should have those transponders under our skin, Ugh. and we should have some codes, more codes than just you know condition green. You have a well-trained bridge crew, Captain. My compliments. And again, Kirk. Kirk sees the opportunity. The mm-hmm. moment, the split second moment that Tracy lets down his guard, he knocks the phaser out of his hand and punches him in the face. But again, Kirk is really, really no match for, for Tracy. Tracy is just a stronger person. Well, he has spent hours fighting with Cloud William in the cave, you know, and been knocked out. He's yeah. been some stuff. Yeah, he's tired. Um, <laughs> uh, and Kirk runs and Tracy fires on him, just missing him and comes around the corner. Kirk is standing there. Helpless, Tracy raises the fa- phaser, aims it at him, and that is out of juice. Yeah, and so Kirk goes goes for him, but then Tracy sees the big axe. He pulls it out of the wood. Kirk makes one last, like last ditch, desperate attempt to throw himself at Tracy, and they get into a scuffle on the ground. And then you see one spear enter the frame. Then you see another spear enter the frame frame and they they look at the spears and they look up and there is cloud william with other people with other yangs and they're captured again it's like capture you know captured escape captured escape capture escape yeah yeah it's this pattern we see a lot and we're in what you know like a big huge tent or something some sort of structure and there's this uh door that has like the hanging beaded uh curtain uh and we see cloud william there Kirk is there, McCoy is there, Spock is brought in, still looking about a bit wounded. If my ancestors were forced out of the cities, into the deserts, the hills, they would have learned to wear skins, adopted stoic mannerism, learned the bow and the lance, living like Indians, finally even looking like the American Indian. And by the way, what is the sound that you hear in the background during the scene? I think it's the post-battle partying. That's what I think is going on. Because it sounds like they're watching an old Western on TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I actually think it is, is they went. So I don't know. I don't know if you know this, but there are things called loops. And loops are just sound effects or or walla. Walla is um, people talking where, where it's not articulate. Mm-hmm. So like a restaurant noise or a crowd uh, or things yeah, like yeah. that. That's uh-huh. called walla. And so these were called loops because it was literally you picture a piece of magnetic tape and it was literally a circle of tape. So you put it on the player and it would just play the circle over and over and over again. And, you know, all the studios had these loops and you go like, well, I need some Native Americans dancing loop. I need some rain. I need some this. And I think this is just the, you know, old Western loop that is playing in the background. You know who else used loops? Well, everyone who makes films used loops, but who? The Beatles. <laughs> oh, of course they did. Yeah, the Beatles in, uh, in in songs like "Tomorrow Never Knows" mm-hmm. and uh, "Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite," uh, and of course, you know, "Revolution Number Nine." Uh, mm-hmm. They used loops. Sure. Well, and today it's just it's just digital files. Yeah, you know, like yeah. if you go in a garage band, that's the modern version of loops. You could just lay down a you know a rhythm track and then lay down a acoustic guitar track, and that's just gonna loop. Yes. Yanks, Spock, Yankees, Cobras, Communists. Parallel is almost too close, Captain. To which my note is, 
Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. And there's Hodgkin's law of parallel development. <laughs> well, and this Again. Is, yeah. Well, and this is where it gets. It's one thing to say that a society, different societies might figure out the same stuff, like you know, do in, in piece of the action and well, uh, patterns well, but, of but, but I mean, in generally figure out the same stuff, like they might figure out democracy or they might figure out. Um, a set of legal principles oh, and see. precedent. Yep. But they wouldn't have the same names. Yes, that's that's where this is all a bit of a stretch. <laughs> it would mean they fought the war your Earth avoided. And in this case, the Asiatics won and took over this planet. Just the fact that there are, quote-unquote, Asiatics. Asiatics, yeah. You know, it's just sort of a weird bit of parallelism. And we hear drums, and Cloud Williams stands up and in a proud voice says, That which is ours is ours again. It will never be taken from us again. And then, as the music swells, we see an old, tattered American flag come through the door, and the Star Trek music becomes the Star-Spangled Banner. That is Fred Steiner's score, and the glory of the Omega Glory comes through that room, through the door, the American flag, and... That's where this episode, you, you could say, if you if you really hated this episode, this is where it jumps the shark. Well, here's what's funny that I was thinking about, is that when I was a kid, I thought that was so cool. I did, too. I, I was like, too. oh, my God. It's this crazy, like, M. Night Shyamalan level of twist at the end where you're like, oh, my God. That's, they have the American flag. These are the Americans. And wow, isn't that cool? Yeah, like the and Twilight like, Zone. Like a Twilight Zone, which I also love. And as an adult, I go, they're doing nothing with this. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like there isn't, it's, it would be really interesting if we actually talked about communism and America or what it means to be American or what American values are, or what the importance of the constitution is, but that's not what we're doing. We're just right. seeing the flag, but that is also the end of act three Act <laughs> four. We come back again. We're hearing that star spangled Star Trek music. It can be handled, Joe. Together. It'll be easy. I, I really like him as a villain. I think he's great. Yeah. I caution you, gentlemen. Don't fight me here. I'll win. Or at worst, I'll drag you down with me. Cloud William gets up and makes a speech and says, and this is interesting. He says, Many have died. This is the last of the calm places. What is ours is ours again. So have they conquered the planet or have they conquered America again? That well, that's a great question. Uh, no idea. I mean, I'm yeah, gonna, I don't know. I don't think. Yeah, we know. no, I, no, I don't think there's any way to. Really yeah. know. And he goes to the flag and puts his hand on the heart, his heart, and then starts spewing this weird language. Which I'll tell you, as a kid, I went, "Oh, that's probably like Latin or something." But then, as I became a little older and I'm in high school and I had heard what Latin sounds like, I'm like, "That's not Latin. Yeah. That's like pig Latin. It's just some weird." Invented language. I plaguely iron neck to flagon to pep like for stand. Which Kirk manages to recognize somehow as the Pledge of Allegiance. And jumps in and says, Unto the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God. And does the Pledge of Allegiance. And the huge reaction goes around the room. <laughs> I'd never thought about this before, but. Why do they read the Pledge of Allegiance in this totally weird way 
when they all speak English? Uh, that's a great question. Like, and if why they are read they... it all, yeah, and yeah. if they read it in this weird way, how do they know that what Kirk is saying is the same thing? That's a great point. If Kirk is saying it the right way, and they know that, wouldn't they have been saying it the right way all along? Well, because we know they know how to read, or at least Cloud William knows how to read, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because he reads off of the thing. But strangely enough, when he reads, he reads in weird Yang Pig Latin. Yeah, he put Mista. <laughs> it totally makes no sense. Makes no sense. Yeah. 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 I mean, it makes no sense because, like you said, like they're saying it a certain way. So, unless Kirk finishes it saying it the way that they're saying it, how do they know what he's saying if he's saying it like the way that they should have said it all along? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No, it makes no sense. Well, and, all, and again, it goes to there's a difference between another place inventing democracy or having similar historical experiences to America and have literally the exact same words in a Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, yeah. Those are different or having the exact same looking flag. You know, that's just is it's a ridiculous thing. You know, many of our high worship words. How? And Kirk starts to explain, you know, that they have a tribe like this. He says they come from those little lights you see in the side. Why are you here? Were you cast out? And Kirk starts to explain, no, 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 you're confusing the stars with heaven. And then we hear this voice. He was cast out. Well, you know what I like? And this is where I I can, I'm imagining what the good episode is. What does Kirk do when he's in a situation? He's a trickster. He observes and then he uses what he observes to get what he wants. What's Captain Tracy doing? That's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. He's, but he, it's like he's using sort of a, like a, an inverse way that Kirk would do it. Well, he's doing the dark version because he's the bad guy, but he's yeah. still manipulating people. And I think his performance of this is great. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Don't you recognize the evil one? Who else would trick you with your own sacred words? Let your God strike me dead if I lie. It, and this is so smart, is that he goes... See his servant, his face, his eyes, his ears. Do the Yang legends describe the servant of the evil one? <laughs> they bring up this big book, which is like an old Bible, I guess, or yeah, something. Yeah. They kiss it, they open it. They open this huge book directly to the correct page. Which, you know, that's what we do in movies because we don't want to spend a lot of time doing stuff. And there yeah, they is they did a, it in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember? Yeah, that's, that's just how we do you know, because how much time are you going to spend looking through pages? Right. And the picture that they find is of Mr. Spock. Yes. <laughs> like, it isn't, it isn't kind of like him. It is him. It is him, yeah, yeah. Are your faces alike? Can you tell from them which of you is good and which of you is evil? You command him, everyone's seen that. You want more proof? He has no heart. He has no, no heart. heart. <laughs> Tracy's smart, man. This is this is, I think, Kirk level BS. Right. He's just the he's just the bad guy version of what Kirk would well, do. And again, I go into this idea, like I keep going back to Kirk versus the evil version of himself. Wow, that's a great episode. Wouldn't you like to see that episode? Yeah, we kind of you know? did with the enemy within, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> well, the different, but yeah, but yeah. That's, yeah that's, that's sort of different. Um, and Cloud William goes and listens to Spock's heart and has a great reaction. He has no heart. The assistant guy says there is a way. Greatest of holies, chiefs and sons of chiefs, they speak the words. The evil one's tongue would surely turn to fire. And he goes into the e planista. Yep. E planista, norco, forcom, perfectonum. 
And Kirk's going, I, it sounds familiar. How does that sound familiar, by the way? I I never understood how that could sound familiar. Well, this is why when I was a kid and I had in my head that this was Latin, I was like, oh, Kirk speaks Latin and he's <laughs> translating. But then once I went that it's just gobbledygook, no, it doesn't sound like. It doesn't sound people. like we the no. people at all. He fears to speak to me. Indeed, his tongue would burn with fire. Force him. Kill his servant unless he speaks. And a knife goes to Spock's throat. And I love Nimoy's kind of look with the knife in like his it's throat. Like, is this really happening? Yeah. He's like, oh, God, here we go. Okay. <laughs> There's a better way. Does not your sacred book promise that good is stronger than evil? And for some reason, the woman whose name I don't remember pipes up at this moment and says, yeah. yes, it's written. Finally, Sira says something. Sira she says, says something. yes, it's true. Good shall always destroy evil. Which, by the way, this is where, you know, I know this episode was 3000 bucks over budget. I would just cut her. I don't don't have her in the episode. She doesn't contribute almost anything. Save you probably five or six hundred bucks. Uh, <laughs> you well, know. well, she was the one in the in the cell with Kyle William when they were fighting I know. Kirk. But yeah. I know. But it could just be Kirk fighting with that guy. Yeah, you that's know. true. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you would have missed her. Uh, and and <laughs> I'm thinking like as we have this idea that first of all the idea that good always triumphs over evil that is obviously not true mm-hmm. and the Yangs just spent how many generations because they lost the big war mm-hmm. you know so clearly that doesn't make sense but we go okay we're gonna do it and I love we start with that knife going into the floor it's a great shot it's well framed and Cloud Boyman says the fight is done when one is dead what's different about this fight is that. So you're going to have Kirk and Tracy fight each other, mm-hmm. but their hands, their wrists are are tied together. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they have freedom and mobility to move about the room. They're 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 stuck together, and before the fight begins, Kirk looks at Tracy like, "Don't do this." Tracy mm-hmm. is looking at Kirk like, "You're dead meat." Yeah, they're. Yeah. They're not on the same page here. By the way, the thing I said a minute or two ago about good not always triumphing over evil, it suddenly occurs to me yes. that McCoy's next line might be where I first learned that lesson because McCoy says, I found that evil usually triumphs unless good is very, very careful. That's a great line, isn't it? It really is. And it really, I, I just had this recently. There's so often where people are trying to put ethical reasons or causal reasons why non-causal things happen like this happened to me because i'm good or why did this happen to me because i'm you know right like my aunt was the sweetest most perfect wonderful good person as far as i know she had zero vices uh-huh, you know right. just did great work in the community and she got cancer horrible kind of cancer and i'm talking to my uncle who says why is this happening to her she's such a good person and i'm like because it has nothing to do with her being a good person. Yeah. Good has nothing to do with whether or not you get cancer. Good and evil, who wins and who loses, as they're totally disconnected. Um, and maybe that thought, that lesson started with this line from McCoy, for me. That's a great line. Yeah. Uh, I like this fight. I think they do a really good job of making a really interesting fight with them tied together. And again, it seems to be both of them the whole time. Yep. Fuck, we got to do something. I'm open to suggestions, Doctor. And then we're going to get just a dumb... Spock uses his superpowers to mind control the woman to get yeah. her to... where yeah. did that come from? Like, of all the things, Steve, that you and I have talked about in the evolution of Spock and discovering new things about him, whether it's the neck pinch or the mind meld or the third eyelid 
or his ability to to touch a wall or a rock and and you know sort of you know uh, influence the person on the other side. Now he's got this like look that gives him this power of uh, of, of over the mind, um, and it's never used again. Um, well, I mean, I mean it, it, it's it, the way it's directed is actually really, really well. The, the way that Vincent McAvee directed it with and, the eyes and all that, and you know the 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 the, the music, the Vulcan music. Um, but it just like just was one of those. It, it felt like a plot contrivance more than anything. Well, when you're doing, when you're the writer and you're doing this thing because you couldn't figure out how to get out of the situation you wrote yourself into, and so you give Spock bigger powers than he had before. That's not good writing. Right. And I agree. You know? I agree with that here. But the music is building. She is going to the communicator. The communicator is opening. Kirk and Tracy are fighting. Kirk kind of gets him in an arm bar, does a disarm, grabs the knife. And as the music climaxes and then drops out, he puts the knife right to Tracy's throat and stops. Then he doesn't kill him. Mm-hmm. Say what you like about this episode, whether you like it or maybe you don't like it. But the moment... When Kirk has his chance to be victorious, and he and I just love the moment he takes the knife and the way he s- swings his arm all the way yeah. around, like it's actually really well done. It's totally well done. And Tracy looks scared, and Kirk drops the knife, or he 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 doesn't drop the knife, but he takes it away from Tracy's throat, and he, you know, cuts off the noose on their wrists, but. This moment made me think of the Gorn in Arena. Totally. No, I won't kill you. Yeah. This moment made me think of Spectre of the Gun mm-hmm. when he was about to shoot Wyatt Earp in the face and he didn't. He chose not to kill today. And this kind of does tie into the Kirk that we love. I totally agree. And I keep going back to the per- making it personal is that he really wanted to kill the Gorn. So when he chooses not to kill the Gorn, it's a big deal. Absolutely. Oh, he chased he really that did. ship. He chased that ship across the galaxy. He wanted to kill him. Yep, he sure did. You're right. We never get the sense that he actually <laughs> wanted to kill Tracy. We, if, it had been, if this episode had been personal, and he was like, and even if at a point in the cell he said, the only thing I can think to do is to kill Ron Tracy. I have, mm. I'm going to have to kill him. And then he chooses not to kill him. Then it's more dramatic. But I totally agree. It's totally in the Kirk character and showing mercy. And then right at the same moment, here's Sulu and some more red guys. They beam (laughs) down. He says, you know, we picked up the communicator signal. And I'm like, what what the hell have you been doing, Sulu? (laughs) Like, What the hell took you so long? Yeah, come on, dude. Well, well, the the communicator signal was because Spock had Sierra open up the communicator. No, no, I totally. No, I understand that. I'm just saying they, they had, they knew where the communicators were. You know, they probably could have figured out where our people were. What are you, what's taking so long? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you would not say the holy words of the evil Nista, I doubted you. I did not recognize those words. You said them so badly without meaning. And he walks over to the box and they try to stop him because only sons of chiefs may see it. And he pushes him away and he pulls out the Constitution written in the same handwriting, you know. Right, that they that they got from the prop house of we need a prop constitution. Yeah, yeah, from uh, the Paramount prop house. Yeah, among my people, we carry many such words as this from many lands, many worlds. Many are equally good and are as well respected. But wherever we have gone, 
No words have said this thing of importance in quite this way. It's a weird speech. So first of all, the reason why I have really had a soft spot for the Omega Glory over all these years is because of a special memory that happened when I was in fifth grade. So in fifth grade, I was going to Lesh Elementary School in Northeast Philadelphia, where I was born. So fifth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Rosoff, she- uh, Mrs. Rosoff. Mrs. Rosoff. She was tough. I bet. But uh, so this is fifth grade. And uh, she says, does anybody in the class know the preamble to the Constitution? And no one raised their hand. She goes, really? Nobody knows the preamble to the Constitution? So, Steve, back then, when I was a little kid, I was really, really shy. I -hmm. sat in the back of the room. So I slowly raised my hand. And Mrs. Rosoff looks at me and says, oh, Scott Mance, you know the preamble to the Constitution? And I'm like, you know, really meek. I'm shaking my head. She goes, why don't you come up to the front of the class? And say oh, the preamble geez. to the Constitution. Wow. So I go to the front of the class, Steve Morris, and I stood there. And then I I didn't just say the preamble to the Constitution. I struck a pose. And I said, we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union. And I just went through the whole thing. I didn't say the preamble as Scott Mance. I said the preamble as James T. Kirk. I learned the preamble of the Constitution, not in school, but I learned it from Star Trek. And when I was finished and everybody clapped and I went back to my seat and Mrs. Rosoff said, she asked me in front of everybody, how did you remember the Constitution? How did you remember that? And I said, Star Trek. That is why flaws aside – I will always love or at least have a soft spot in my heart for the Omega Glory. First of all, that is a fantastic story. Did you <laughs> did you, did this help you get over a little of your shyness or did you go back to I went to back to being shy for a few years, yeah. I understand. Um, <laughs> what's f- crazy is I too memorized the preamble to the Constitution at basically exactly the same time, but it wasn't from the Omega Glory even though I watched it many times. It was Schoolhouse Rock. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cuz in my mind it's we the people in order to form a more perfect union. That's really that's good. How, that's how I learned it. So he talks more about this thing and he talks about these words that are written bigger than the rest that say we the people. That what you call Eid Plebnista was not written for the chiefs or the kings or the warriors or the rich or the powerful, but for all the people. And this is where I go. If they only had the chiefs and sons of chiefs reading it, did they know what it meant? And what the hell did they make of article six and of, of like all these <laughs> yeah. things about, were they reading all these weird things about Congress and term limits and, you know, all that stuff. Is that what they were looking at? Cause the constitution is not scintillating reading exactly. But, but why do you think that, that this moment, like this, this fourth act of the Omega Glory, is the reason that people that that there are, there is a, a contingent of Star Trek fans who really hate this episode, and and the reason they say is Act Four really falls apart. Do you think I it think, really falls apart in Act Four? I think it doesn't mean anything, because what's weird about this is we're not in. First of all, I don't think it should have been the preamble. As much as I don't w- want to mess up your moment in Mrs. Rosoff's class, obviously <laughs> it was amazing. It should have been the Declaration of Independence. 
It should have been, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And the, and the reason is that I'm saying that is that the preamble of the constitution is basically saying, Hey, we're the people and we're forming this government. And this is what, gov this is what our government is supposed to do. Those aren't to me, inspiring words. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where, and they're not deep, uh, you know, like saying that we're going to have a government and it's going to have a defense and it's going to promote the general welfare. It's like, yeah, that seems like what government should do. Saying all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's deep. That's about something important. Well, you know I, what I mean? I, but at the same time, I, I completely agree with you. But, you know, they, they could have gone with the Declaration of Independence, but they went with the Constitution. Yes. And the words, we the people. Um, we the people is, are great. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that all, I think that the criticism, especially the way that the Omega Glory has aged, the criticism leveled at the Omega Glory, particularly in Act Four, is that it makes the episode out to be so pro-American. Yeah. And I completely understand why people actually are against the episode today for that reason, because it's so pro-American. But I always saw it as just about these these words and what those words meant. We the people. The way Kirk says they must apply to everyone or they mean nothing. I Take the Americanness out of the equation and just look at the words we the people and the equality and they must apply to everyone. That's where I think this episode does say something. It says it really late in the game. Real late. And it, and it also doesn't say it with as much uh, uh, with the lasting impact that that it really should, because there are things that just don't make sense. Because it's it, it is a poorly written episode. No no offense, Mister Roddenberry, but I just think that ultimately what should stand out from this episode, despite its flaws, despite its unevenness, despite the way that it is, like you said, three different stories that don't really feel like a complete whole. But ultimately, that moment of they must apply to everyone or they mean nothing. Do you understand? I do not fully understand one named Kirk. But the holy words will be obeyed. I swear it. I dislike the words. That's all. I, I do too. And, and this is where I go because I keep inventing different episodes. So one episode is Kirk versus, you know, evil Kirk with Captain Tracy. Um, and... One episode is like, well, if you move this to the end of Act Three rather than the end of Act Four, and then he, and maybe if this happened right before the big battle with the Cones, and maybe then if Kirk saying this has to apply to everyone leads them to make peace in Act Four and create a bridge, well, then we would be exploring the meaning of the words, yeah, rather than just saying them at the end of the episode. Yeah, like like it's a it's a, it's it's the. The point is it's about the words, but, but by the time you get to that point, the episode's over. It's over. Yeah. So, so, so this moment, which should have had more meaning, like that the impact should have, but like the takeaway should have been that these words must apply to everyone and, 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 and that the words, regardless of where they were written, whether it was the constitution or something else, just the words themselves. But it comes so late in the game that I just think that that ultimately the Omega Glory is an episode that is just it's just misunderstood. And unfortunately, there are reasons why it is misunderstood. 
because it's just it has its faults. It's and but ultimately it's the words, and I just I just it's a shame that that doesn't stand out more. I'm gonna I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this thought, which is because I think this comes down to the one of the key ideas, and it's what Kirk says. You know, when he says it must apply to everyone or it means nothing, is that the idea that you're carrying around a flag, but you don't know the meaning of the flag, or you're carrying around the Constitution, but you don't know what it means, I think that's a really important idea. And I think sometimes we get caught up in thinking America is special just because it's special. Yep. Mm -hmm. Rather than thinking it's special because of the values, because of the ideas, and that if you abandon the ideas, but still carry around the flag, that's not special. It's the ideas that make it special. And that the these are just descendants of Americans. They're not Americans, you know? Right, I like, see what you're saying. They're, they're carrying the flag, but the feeling in the episode is that, yay, the Americans won. That's kind of what it wants to be. Right, right. But I don't think we're there. I don't think we've gotten there because we, because yes, Kirk says the words have to apply to everyone or they mean nothing, but we don't see them understand. But also I think because of everything that has happened, since this episode first aired in 1968, especially after everything that that America has been through, really, since the Vietnam War, since Watergate, culminating with all the problems we've had over the last five years and how there is so much division and there's been so much imperialism going on uh, you know, around the world uh, in the last you know, 50, 55 years, um, you know, American imperialism. I think that those words should be re-examined by not just America, but but all people now, because I think now more than ever is when we really need to really understand what those word means and practice what, what we preach by saying about equality and we the people. Because lately, it certainly doesn't feel like those words apply to everyone. And right now, those words kind of do mean nothing because there have been so many problems and because you know we live in troubled times and there is so much division especially in America that to take a good look at what these words mean uh, especially by the people running the show uh, wouldn't be a bad thing to like really sit down and be like okay let's kind of get back to the basics here like where did this all start it started with these words and and I think to that extent while Omega Glory hasn't really aged well, uh, what it says, what it, what those words say are more important than ever. 100% agree. The, the one last thing I'll say is there's the quote, and I cannot remember who it's from, which is the, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And I think we always apply that to looking outside. Like yep. we have to be vigilant against the people coming to take my liberty. But I actually think it should be, be equally applied inside mm -hmm. is that the price of liberty is me being internally vigilant about my own behavior and my own value system to make sure I'm upholding my end. You know, yeah. that's, that's the other part it has to come from. Um, and then at the end, we have the question of, well, Captain Tracy clearly violated the prime directive, but did we? And Kirk's response, when at the beginning, he said, we swore we would die. Before doing it, he says, well, I just told him what their words meant. So that's not really violating. <laughs> and you're like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, no, you're still interfering. If, they, if, the, if the natural evolution of this society was they totally forgot what those words meant, 
Well, that's where they went to naturally. So you are interfering. Well, I, I, I actually think and I'm going to take Kirk's word for, for, for it on this one, just because there are so many completely implausible parallels to, to the parallel earth thing, you know? And, yeah. and I think that after Tracy, the way that Tracy really did deliberately violate the directive and, and the way that the, the Yangs were completely misunderstanding what these words were and Kirk is helping them see the light. If it, if it leads to something good, I'm all for it. Well, this is the, the two, there are two different discussions. One, does it violate the prime directive? Two, is it the right decision? I, I think it's probably the right decision, A, because it saved their lives and B, because he told them good stuff. Right. But I exactly. still think it violates the prime directive. Fair enough. Uh, what did other people say about this episode? Well, before I get into what other people said, there is a lot, to, a lot more to be said about this episode. First okay. of which, okay, so let's say, Steve, it's March 1st, 1968, and you're watching the Omega Glory, okay? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the episode's over, then there's a commercial break, and then you come back to the ending credits. So Steve, if you were watching the ending credits of the Omega Glory on March 1st, 1968, you would have heard the announcer say, Star Trek will come back for season three. Wow. So stop sending those letters. (laughs) (laughs) Did they actually say that? Yes. (laughs) They really said stop sending those letters? Star Trek will be back. Stop with the letter writing. I mean, I don't know the exact words, but it was announced during the ending credits of the Omega Glory that Star Trek will be back for a third season. So the other thing is that the Omega Glory was the last of nine episodes produced by showrunner John Meredith Lucas. Now, it's only nine episodes compared to the full season and to the second half of the first season, the first half of the second season that Gene Kuhn produced. But John Meredith Lucas did a terrific job with these last nine episodes, especially like if you look at like The Ultimate Computer, which he, yeah. which he directed. So I think he did a great job. And I think that just like Gene Kuhn, John Meredith Lucas is another one of the unsung heroes of Star Trek. This is also the last episode to credit Herb Solo as the executive in charge of production because he left Paramount, which was Desilu, for MGM, which produced The Courtship of Eddie's Father, and then came Bronson. And then came Bronson, hmm. while Herb Solo worked again with Robert H. Justman. The other thing about Omega Gory was that Gene Roddenberry was so proud of his script that he actually reached out to NBC and said, hey, NBC, this episode came out great. Let's hold it back and use it to launch the third season of Star Trek. NBC said, no. Gene Roddenberry was also so proud of his script for the Omega Gory that he personally submitted it for an Emmy Award, which it did not get. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, the Omega Gory has the distinction, Steve. Did you ever have a Viewmaster? Remember the Viewmaster? Sure, of course. Okay. So the Omega Gory was the only episode of the original series to get its own Viewmaster reel. Wow. I kind of think that's the coolest of all, is that it, it was a Viewmaster. So <laughs> did you have uh, the Star Trek one? Uh, I think so, yes. I yeah. do think I had a Star Trek Viewmaster. I, I, I had a bunch. Yeah, I had a bunch. I had like like Peanuts, Bugs Bunny, Spider-Man, and Star Trek. So Morgan Woodward, who played Captain Tracy, said, Omega Gory was simply about a good man got bad. 
perhaps because of some ego-induced insanity. Captain Tracy didn't become a starship captain by being a jerk or a bad guy. It was just a good man got bad. That's the way I tried to play him. Vincent McAvity, who directed the episode, said, I thought that was Bill's best performance, at least in the episodes that I had directed, particularly when he read the Constitution. That was an incredibly exciting reading. And I felt the episode was very, very exceptional with the writing and the whole thing. So Vincent McAvity really, really liked this episode. William Shatner said, the Omega Glory had a history of rejection, but there was no keeping a mediocre script down. It does have some fantastic political commentaries for its time and some excellent action sequences. And then the man who wrote it and the man who created Star Trek itself said, it's of course Gene Roddenberry said, next to the first pilot and the two-part envelope of the menagerie. I suppose that may have been the one I was most pleased with where I had taken a writing credit. Of course, there had been others where I did most of the writing, but I did not list my name. And there may have been episodes I thought turned out better, such as the first Romulan one. But the Omega Glory, I was pleased with, even if others didn't see that way. It does really show that uh, you can be a brilliant creator and still not be necessarily be a good judge of your own work. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think I've mostly given most of my final thoughts, but the, the one thing I will say is that in filmmaking, the whole is not always the sum of its parts. Yeah. Is you and I have both pointed out a whole bunch of moments and performances and things that we really like about this episode. And they do not come together for me. You know, individually, that's a good fight scene. That's a good performance. But the whole does not really work. That's my final thought, I think. My, my final thought, I, I completely share yours. But despite the fact that the whole is less than the sum of its parts, I still think that the Omega Glory is overall, it's a fun episode. It's an engaging episode. I just think that the lighting is very dramatic and it's a, it's a, it's a gritty episode. The performances are very committed and, you know, Shatner's delivery of the constitution is just so, so inspiring, uh, up there with risk is our business, um, or at least close to it. So I'm, I'm on the, I'm on team Omega Glory. I like it more than probably most people. And I think there are far worse episodes than this episodes that are unwatchable and I don't watch them, but every once in a while I will go back to the Omega glory. And, uh, and as I did this time, I found a whole lot to enjoy about it. And there sure is a, since we already said our spiel about mm -hmm. where to find us, or where to find enterprise incidents, Steve, where can people find you? Well, they'd find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And since we had a very patriotic episode, I thought I'd mention some patriotic films that have appeared on my other podcast, The Cinephiles, like one of my favorite films about Washington, D.C., which is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, All the President's Men, um, The Right Stuff, it's super patriotic. I love and that with, movie. <laughs> it's a fantastic movie. And with Top Gun Maverick coming out, well, we did Top Gun on The Cinephiles, so those are all some America loving movies you can check out on the cinephiles. Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at movie Manson. Like I said, like we said at the top of the show, be sure to share enterprise incidents on your social media platforms. Be sure to go to Apple podcasts and leave your review. Be sure to like and follow us on our Facebook page. We love engaging with people in the comments section on our Facebook page, which is enterprise incidents. And I can't believe I'm actually saying these words, Steve Morris, but next time on Enterprise Incidents, Season 2, 
of Star Trek, the original series, comes to a close. I cannot believe we are at this point. We have reached the end of our second season of Enterprise Incidents with an episode that is really unique and special in its own right. It is Assignment Earth. Assignment Earth is next on Enterprise Incidents. So join us for the season finale of Enterprise Incidents next time. And until then, you know the words. Keep going boldly.